Won't you open up um, to 2 Samuel chapter 11? That's where we're going to be this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 11. We are continuing in our series on looking at the life of David, and today we are looking at a very familiar story. Um, I think if you think of the life of David and the character of David, um, if, you, if you chat to somebody who's, who's not a Christian or not a churchgoer, and you ask them, what do they know about David? They'll tell you that they know the story of David and Goliath, you know, the big giant that he whacked, and they'll know the story of David and Bathsheba when David got it all wrong. So that's what we're looking at today. It's one of the most popular stories. Unfortunately for David, it's like sort of a defining, life-defining story for him. And um, what we're going to do, just so you know where we're going in the next few weeks, there is there's so much for us to look at in this account, in this, in this patch of David's life, that we're going to do it over three weeks. I know some of you, might, we might get to the end of this week, and you might think we could have done that all in one week. But please trust me that there's so much that I want us to see in terms of how, how sin works in our lives, the, the importance of confession and repentance and what that looks like, and, and what it looks like in David's life, and how and we can really get a handle on these things. So we're going to do it over three weeks. All right, so today we're just going to look at the, the interaction that David has with Bathsheba. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by reading, uh, so won't you follow along with me from verse 1, um, 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her. And he said, isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Iliam and wife of Uriah the Hethite? David sent messengers to, her, to get her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterwards, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. Let's just stop there for now. We're going to read longer sections as we go through it, but I want us to stop there. Um, and I'm going to make some kind of headline points as we go through this and um, sort of expand on the narrative here. But the first thing I want us to, if you're a note taker, this would be the point number one. Never underestimate the power of your desires. Never underestimate the power of your desires. What, what condition was David's soul in here? Uh, it tells us that in the spring when kings go off to war, this is like war season, if you want. Um, it was easier to go to war in the spring because it was easier to feed the troops and for them to sleep out in the fields and stuff. So it's like, it's like cricket season. It's now war season. Um, and David is supposed to be out with his men, his soldiers, fighting, but he's in Jerusalem, and I think he's just got comfortable. He has, he has largely been given peace on either side. These are not essential wars. These are just like skirmishes that they're getting involved in, just trying to take more ground. It's not essential for Israel's survival. But David's not with his men. He sent Joab 
He sent Joab to go and do what he's supposed to be doing. And now he's lurking around Jerusalem with none of his close men near him. So if you're taking notes, there's lots of things to take notes of this morning. None of his close men are near him. Men? When none of the close men in your life are near you, that's when things go sideways. Because now he's wandering around on his palace rooftop on his own. There's no one to tell him, but that's a bad idea. That's, men, you need oaks in your life who can tell you that's a bad idea. I mean, I plan to never walk around on my roof, but I don't have a, a roof like David. Um, this is the scene. He, he's the king. He has the nicest house. Remember, he has a cedar house. He's got a roof. He's walking around, and um, the people who were the closest to the king live the closest to the king. So he can walk, and from his, from his rooftop, he can see into the courtyards of the other houses that are very close to him. And what does he spot? He spots Bathsheba um, bathing. A beautiful woman, it says, bathing. Now, he's close enough to see into the courtyard. You, you'll hear some people say, what on earth is Bathsheba doing, having a bath out in the courtyard there, tempting David, shame on Bathsheba, you know, be more modest. They didn't have indoor plumbing back then. You know, you had to do the stuff like outside, like it was just normal. There's nothing dodgy that Bathsheba was doing in this entire interaction. Okay? It's very important for us to clarify this because sometimes this scripture has been twisted to say, hey, women, be more modest. If you weren't out there putting out all your stuff, then poor old, then the men, you make it harder for the men, you know, poor old David wouldn't have, wouldn't have got himself into this if, if Bathsheba had just been less out there. And it's got nothing to do with Bathsheba. It's got everything to do with David. Um, sorry, I'm not meaning to get so wound up so early in the sermon. This is going to be a long morning if that's what's happening four minutes in. Anyhow, he's wandering around and he sees, he sees Bathsheba bathing. This is the most important thing to note here. This entire interaction... And all of the mess and carnage that follows on from this event in David's life could have been averted if David just kept on walking. He had options in that moment of what to do. And this is just us, guys. This is textbook us. This, not every interaction, not every episode in David's life you can find yourself in the story. This is the one where we are all over this story. This is how our lives are. Temptation comes along and we have options of what to do. Entertain it, linger, just keep it going a little bit. And as soon as we do that, we find ourselves starting to march down the road of giving in to those things. We all have different temptations. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But David has the option to just keep on walking and say, oh, lady's having a bath, you know, keep going. But he doesn't. He stares and he allows one look to become a lingering look to become a lustful look, and everything goes sideways from there. And you would think, um, I, I do want to unpack some of the grievousness of this sin, not to throw David under the bus, but to help us understand more of the phenomenal grace of God in this. He sends a messenger to go and find out who is this? Uh, who is this lady? It's, it's such nonsense. He knows exactly who she is. The report comes back, it's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the daughter of Eliam. Um, if you read in, uh, if you're making notes, 2 Samuel 
23. You can see where we get in all of this. Go read it, 2 Samuel 30, 23. David had 33 men who were his, like, closest soldiers. He's like elite hit squad, if you want. Okay? Like when he needed oaks, the top of the top, he had 33 oaks. He had three, and then there were another 30. 33 oaks. Two of the 33 choice elite soldiers, one is Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. The other is Iliam, Bathsheba's dad. Okay? So he's like, Ooh, who's this lady having a bath? Bathsheba. Hmm, who is that? Oh, yeah. bro, your closest soldiers. This is one of them's wife. It's like basically she's been at the Christmas party every end of year function. Like, you know this lady. You, are you with me? Like, it's not a surprise. It's, it's the daughter of another one of his choice soldiers. And it's the granddaughter. <clears throat> Ahitophel. Ahithophel. Ahithophel, I think is the preferred pronunciation. There's an advisor. You see it earlier on in David's career. Um, life, Ahithophel, and you see it again later. Ahithophel is David's closest advisor. Yeah, the person with the ear of the king. Say, hey, David, do this, don't do this. Ahithophel. Ahithophel is who? Bathsheba's grandpa. His closest advisor's granddaughter. You would think once he discovers that that's who's having a bath, he'd be like, whoa. <laughs> Sorry, didn't mean to see you there. No. What does he do? He sends for her. He sends for her. David's soul is in such a bad spot. He's in such a, a lost space that even knowing full well who Bathsheba is, it doesn't stop him in his tracks. Guys, don't, don't kid yourself that you can pull the handbrake on your own sin, once you start walking down a road. Even knowing who this, and what the potential impact of this action would be, doesn't stop him. Don't underestimate the power of your desire. If you're, having, if you're taking notes, or if you like to scribble in your Bible, scribble every time the word send is mentioned. It's mentioned about eight times here. David sends, David sends, David, David thinks he's in control of everything that's happening here. He's sending messengers, he's sending for Bathsheba, he's the king. And that's what happened then. You were the king. It wasn't like, hey, go ask Bathsheba if she'd be keen. That's not the interaction here. This is a power play. He sends for Bathsheba, it's not an invitation, it's an instruction. Come here. And she comes and, I mean, I don't know if kids in here, hopefully not. He, he, he rapes her. I think we need to say what's happening here. He rapes her. This is not consensual sex. She was minding her own business, having a bath. She's married, happily married to Uriah. He's all fighting. And David rapes this woman. And there it is for us, recorded in the scriptures. Like I said earlier in this series, the man after God's own heart, who was also after his neighbor's wife. He's a complicated person, just like we are. Don't underestimate, guys, the power of your desires. Let me ask you before we move on in this, what are your areas of weakness? What are your areas of weakness? For David, I think one of his areas of weakness is women. He keeps adding wives, not at God's instruction. God's not, hey, just keep adding them, keep adding them. 
It's like, no, 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 don't keep adding them. It's not the plan. But David just had a weakness for women. That's what gets him into this mess. What's your weakness? Do you know? Because if you don't know it, you can't fight it. The first and greatest step you can take to living a life of a thriving life in Jesus Christ and a life of victory is understanding your particular weaknesses and temptations. Because we all have different things. I'm tempted and weak in different ways to the way you are. And you need eyes wide open. It's not a competition to say, well, I'm just weak in every area. Jesus, you know, I'm like an Olympic sinner. You know, it's not, a, it's not a competition. It's knowledge of like, okay, this is me. These are my particular temptations. And being honest with yourself. Being honest. Do you know? Do others know? Are there people close enough to you to you who know the particular ways in which you are temptable. Because if not, I would suggest you're missing out on some of the richness of Christian community. Some of the depths of it. Both so that you can fight for and with others, and you have others who can fight for and with you. That's what you're designed for. It's not a solo sport. Christian community is what we're designed for. Fighting for and with each other but some of that is a self-disclosing thing, and that's right. We're all very individual. We're all private. We don't, don't, no one must know my stuff. And then you're all, then all we're left with is a solo battle. You just fight with your own strength. And guys, none of us are strong enough all the time. You're going to fall. You're going to fall flat on your face. And it won't be once. It'll be multiple times. Because you're way weaker than you think. And your desires are way, way stronger than you think. You need a battle plan. And the first step in that is understanding the ways in which you're weak. If David understood this, he would have just run if he saw that woman, but he didn't. He entertained it. And everything else that we look at now is the result of David giving in to his weakness. Let's read on from verse 6. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. Then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. You, if you're not familiar with the story, there's some stuff that's like, he's not sending him to go and wash his feet. He's, he's sending him like it's code word for like, go make yourself at home. Go and hang out with your wife. Brought you back for like a a break from the fighting. And he's trying to get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba, obviously, because she's pregnant. I feel like I'm overstating the obvious, but just in case you're, you're not firing on all cylinders this morning. He said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king followed him. So he's sending him with uh, food and wine. And that's what's implied. He's sending him, like, he's like, hey, you know, Go and have a great time at home. I'm sending you with everything that you need. So this would be the greatest night of your life. He's thinking, I've got this whole elaborate plan sorted out here. He doesn't realize that he's dealing with a different kind of a man here. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home. David questioned Uriah. Haven't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Uriah answered David, 
the ark. Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. He went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Job and sent it with Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting and then withdraw from him so that he's struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab, and some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hethite also died. Joab sent someone to report to David all the details of the battle. He commanded the messenger, when you finish telling the king all the details of the battle, if the king's anger gets stirred up and he asks you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you realize that they would shoot from the top of the wall at Thebes, who struck Abimelech, son of Jerushalem? Um, didn't, uh, why well, did they have a name like Stephen and Peter and John? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the top of the wall so that he died? Why did you get so close to the wall? Then say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then the messenger left. When he arrived, he reported to David all that Job had said to tell him. The messenger reported to David, the men gained the advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we counterattacked right up to the entrance of the city gate. However, the archers shot down on your servants from the top of the wall, and some of the king's servants died. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. David told the messenger, say this to Job, don't let this matter upset you because the sword devours all alike. Intensify your fight against the city and demolish it. Encourage him. Let's just stop there. Second thing I want you to see in this account is that unrepentant sin leads to more sin. When we're unrepentant of our sin, what happens is that things start to snowball in our lives. Um, short accounts with God lead to life and forgiveness and joy. Unrepentant sin begins this snowball of destruction in our lives and in the lives of others. Look at this elaborate cover-up, attempted cover-up that David concocts. It's a, it's a grand plan in his mind. He's thinking, I've got this sorted. I'll just bring Uriah back. I'll send him. Of course he's going to go sleep with his wife. Then it'll be fine. Maybe then I'll get rid you know, I'll cover up the pregnancy. But, you know, like I said, Uriah is more of a man than David is at this point in his life. And he refuses to do that. Then he has to up the ante. He's like, okay, well, uh, you know, try to get the guy drunk. See, even in his drunk state, he still is a man of principle and he refuses to do that. Now he's like, I've tried everything. What am I going to do? He sends him back to Joab, carrying his own death warrant. This is how far gone David is. He has, throughout these interactions, the opportunity to repent. 
and to stop this mess. And what I want you to see here is that this is an expanding mess of sin. It was just David and Bathsheba. He could have repented, but he knows that that sin that he committed is it's a capital sin, a capital punishment. He could have been put to death for that sin. And yet he invents this elaborate cover-up. And think of everyone who gets affected by one man's sin. Joab, the commander of the army, is now complicit in arranging the death of one of his soldiers. Joab was a bit of a sketchy fellow, so, you know, he's sort of like, um, always wants to be close to David, so he's willing to do this, but he's, he's helping to organize the death of another man. It says that some of the other soldiers also die. Innocent soldiers who are out fighting, they get put in a place where they're surely going to die. They're minding their own business, as it were, and they get killed because of what? Because of David's sin. The, the, the knock-on effect of this, Uriah gets killed. Bathsheba becomes a widow. Bathsheba becomes a widow, all because of David. Sin has consequences. I know this is not the most uplifting section of this message, but this is the honest truth that we need to find out. Our sin has consequences. Some people will give you a hard time to say, well, the reason why I don't go to church is because, you know, all they talk about is sin, and they make you feel bad about yourself, and they just go on and on and on about that, and, you know, I want to feel good about myself, so I don't want to go to church, and I want to be told how bad I am. The only problem with that is that you know how bad you are. You don't need somebody to tell you that. You know in your quiet, honest, sober moments what's going on in your own heart and your head. And how much you struggle with stuff. It's like a horror show sometimes inside of us. The joy of coming to church is that I get to remind you of how bad you are. Of how bad we are. And that because bad people who recognize their desperate need are the ones who meet the Savior. Who loves them and makes them new. And forgives them. If you don't go that route, you are left in a hopeless place. What will you do with your guilt and your sin and your shame and all of the crap that's in you? Sorry, I shouldn't say those words. I'm also a work in progress. You should have, think, you should have heard what I was thinking of saying. I'm making progress. I'm encouraged by myself. Well done, me. None of us are the finished product. We're all a work in progress. But our sin has consequences. And that's why I want to speak about these things this morning and camp in the story for the whole morning. Because our sin has consequences, and so I'm trying to steer us away. David's sin leads to more sin. How do you respond when you sin? What do you do? I can tell you what we do most of the time. We have different coping mechanisms for when we sin. We minimize our sin. It's not such a big deal. It's just a small little thing. We try and ignore it, look away. We try and hide it from God as if he can't see it. We excuse it. We justify it. Well, it, you know, if, if that person hadn't been like that, I wouldn't have done this. Particularly people who struggle with anger. You wouldn't be such an angry person if everyone else wasn't such an idiot. But it's you. It's not them. 
It's always us. Our greatest struggle, as Paul Tripp says, is always with ourselves. It's always with what's going on inside of us. What do you do? Some of us, when we sin, your default is what's called, what they call works righteousness. You know you've messed up. And now, you need to work your way back. You know God is disappointed. You know it's a sin. It's clear before your eyes. You know you have offended God, disappointed others, whatever. Here's your action plan. You're going to be a better person. You're going to do more. You're going to find your Bible and read it. You're going to come to church. You're going to give. You're going to serve. You're going to clean up your act. You're going to turn over a new leaf. You're going to be a better person. It's called works righteousness. And it has no legs. It has no strength. There's no life. There's no hope. There's nothing in that. There's only one who's righteous and his name is Jesus. And you need his perfect righteousness. All of our attempts at being good people are useless. They're useless. It says in James, if you fall at one point of the law, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. I often mention this when I'm speaking to unbelieving uh, people or crowds at weddings. I try and smuggle this in. Smuggle the gospel into the wedding to say, like, when you think, when you hear people say that they're good people, it's like, what's good? God's standard is perfection. And if you miss one, and everyone understands, like, they haven't been perfect their whole life. I'm like, excellent. You are in good company because if you've missed, if you've broken one part of God's law, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. You may as well just go to town, as it were. God will treat you the same. You're still guilty before him. What will you do with your guilt and your shame and your sin? Unless you run to a savior... You are left paying for it for yourself. Unrepentant sin leads to more sin. Let's read the end of our story here. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. What a grand plan. If you were watching this, you know what you would have thought. Wow, David's such a good dude. What a king. What a king. This lady lost her husband in battle, and now he's taking her in. She's not going to live as a widow. She gets to be one of the wives of the king. He's going to care for her. She's pregnant. What a guy. What a guy. What a stand-up king, man. And Everyone else is fooled. David thinks he's getting away with it. And that last line should absolutely terrify every one of us. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Guys, we can't play games with God. He sees everything. This is the last point. There's no such thing as secret sin. There's no such thing as secret sins. David had concocted this elaborate plan and he had pulled it off. And the outcome makes him look good, but there's that last line that the Lord has seen it and considered what's, what he did to be evil. Let me say this, just, just, because, just because others may not know about your sin doesn't mean that God doesn't see it. Just because it may be a secret to everyone else doesn't mean it's a secret to God. You may be the only person who knows some of the stuff that you get up to or think, or struggle with what goes on in your head and your heart. You might be the only one. But it's not a secret. God sees it. And, and let me say this as well, because you see this in the story with David, just because there's no 
There's no immediate or current consequences to your sin. It doesn't mean that there won't be consequences in the future. You know, we can think we, I said sin has consequences. We can think we're getting away with something because we're not suffering for it now. There's no immediate consequences. But the story of David shows us, and if you keep reading, and we're going to pick it up in the coming, not in the next couple of weeks, but in further weeks, you'll see that this, this, this episode in David's life leads to absolute catastrophe later in his life. Ahithophel, Bathsheba's grandpa, his closest advisor, ends up becoming the closest advisor of his son, who's trying to overthrow his kingdom and leads an absolute all-out rebellion against him. He's, he switches sides. You can imagine. You can imagine Ahithophel's like, I know what, there's something fishy that happened here. You did something weird with my granddaughter. This doesn't all add up. Sin has consequences. Just because you can't see it now doesn't mean that it's not going to have consequences into the future. There is no such thing as secret sin. Hebrews 4 verse 13 says this, No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We underestimate the power of our desires. We are slow to repent and we convince ourselves that God can't see what we're getting up to or that he's okay with what we're doing. And all of this leaves us in desperate, desperate need of a Savior. I don't know, I don't know about you. I only know myself really well. I'm much better at spotting sin in others than I am in spotting sin in myself. I'm like an expert. I'm a trained professional in being able to see how other people are not getting it right and feel quite good about myself looking down my nose at other people. Even David. It's easy for us to look down our noses at David and think, oh, David, we would never do that. Heavens, that's appalling. We're, we are all, in this story, we are all David. And I want us to cl close our time this morning by sharing in communion, but before we have communion, I want us to, I want us to sit with the Lord before we eat and drink. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, the Bible encourages us to examine ourselves before we eat and drink. Now, I know it might be a, feel like a heavier morning for some of us, a somber morning. Maybe you just knew, yeah, you're thinking, look, I'm not coming back to this place. This is actually hectic, yeah, you know. My goal this morning is that you leave this place rejoicing. But you don't rejoice unless you've examined and brought your sin before the Lord again, the one who sees it all and confessed it, and asked him to forgive you again. Guys, you know the thing in your life that you constantly struggle with or that you're ashamed about. When I was praying for our church this week, I was struck by some pictures um, of the power of shame that like, it just clings to people. And I, I know some of you have known some of you for a long time. Some of you I don't even know at all. I wonder how many of us are sitting here this morning with, with shame that's just still got like claws on you. It just hangs on. It's something that you did or something that was done to you that you've never been able to shake. You've confessed it. 
you've wrestled with it, you've repented of it, but you just can't shake the shame. Every time someone like me gets up and speaks about sin, or we come to the Lord's table, it's that thing is right there again and again and again. And my understanding of the Scriptures is that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. That He wants to remove shame and guilt and fear and regret. That is a powerful thing that the Holy Spirit does in us as we come to God. It sometimes takes time. God works in two speeds, slowly and suddenly. And my prayer this morning is that He does the suddenly. That for you, some of you, when you hit those doors this morning, you will be leaving this place with no more shame, no more regret, no more fear of further punishment over something that you did once. That God would cleanse you again, revive your soul, refresh you, and you would leave a rejoicing worshiper of Jesus. Because this is the truth of the Scriptures, guys, is that we don't bear our own sin and our shame and our guilt. There is another who bore it for us. And you can't have two people carrying the same thing. He carried it all. So you carry none of it. That's the deal. That's the glory and the brilliance of the gospel. Is that he takes it all. Not most. Not most. He takes it all. All. So you are left carrying nothing of your sin and your guilt and your shame. All you carry and receive is the life and the joy and the freedom and the forgiveness that comes from Jesus. That is what's on the offer in the gospel. And that's what I want us to soak our hearts in this morning as we come to.